The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's a joy to see you, and I, I mean that when I, when I say that. I look forward to this moment every week. It's a toil to get here, it feels like, but it's always good to be standing in the pulpit being able to preach God's Word this morning. I hope that you've had a blessed week and a, and a good week. We have a lot of things that are going on in our world. I think you know that. I think that you are aware of that. If you're not aware of that, I'd love to know where you live. I want to be your neighbor. I want to live next door to you. Uh, But we do have a lot of things happening in our world, and I hope as a Christian that you are seeking the Lord's face in these things. I hope that you are praying for these things. I hope that you are showing care. And we have an election coming up. I know many of you are thinking about that and hopefully praying about that, again, seeking the Lord's face in that as well. And that's something that we need to be doing. It's something that we, that we should be doing. I'm thankful, though, that God has given us this time together of, of corporate worship, where we gather together as God's people, not to focus on the, the things that are outside, but to focus on Him, on His goodness to us, on, on what He has done for us. And that's why we gather on Sunday mornings, is, is to focus on that and to remember as a body of believers who've gathered here together now, that we are here as, as foreigners in this land, that this is not our home, that this is not where our king resides, this is not where our hope and our peace is to be found, but where we come together remembering what God's word tells us, that he is our king, that he is on the throne, that Jesus is on the throne, that he's king of kings and and Lord of lords, and that we are his, that we have been adopted into his family as Christians by his grace. And so when we gather together on Sundays, it should excite us, should elicit joy in our hearts and peace in our hearts to remind us of those things. Because if you're like me, it's pretty easy throughout the week to get distracted of that, isn't it? To lose sight of that. At times, even to lose hope in our hearts. And so I hope this morning that we're reminded by God's word that we should never lose hope as his because he'll never let go of us. He'll never forsake us. We see that this morning in the chapters that we're going to look at. I don't know why we keep doing this to me. I say we because the other pastors, I'm going to lump them in. It's their fault just as much as mine. We're going to try to do six chapters this morning. It's really an impossible task uh, And we're also going to observe Lord's Supper. And so in the pew in front of you, you should have, I really don't know what to call them other than Lunchables. That's what it is. It's a Lunchable, a Lord's Supper Lunchable. There's a little wafer on top. I know some of you missed that last time. There's a little clear sheet that pulls off to get to your your wafer there. And then a little thing of foil that pulls off for your juice. I pre-did mine because I knew it would be hard. So you can do that if you would like, but just be careful that you don't spill it. But we'll partake of Lord's Supper uh, later at the end. Uh, together. But we're going to go through 1 Samuel chapter 18, all the way through verse chapter 23 uh, this morning. And I'm going to try to do it in about 25 minutes is my goal today. Let's first read uh, verses 1 through 9. Okay, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 18. It says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. 
And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. These verses here that we read together really do set up all of the chapters that we're going to cover together. We will continue to see over and over again, I hope to point this out, Jonathan and David's relationship. Here we see that they make a covenant together, right? We really see something very interesting happening here with Jonathan, where it says Jonathan's heart was knit to David, but it says how he hands over to David his robe, hands over to David his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt, this really is a picture of Jonathan, it seems, understanding I'm not the next king of Israel. Even though my dad is the king right now and I normally would be the next king, it should be mine, it's not mine. It's obviously David's. We don't know how much Jonathan knew at this point about the whole anointing, how Samuel anointed David. I'm not too sure about that, but it seems as if there is some knowledge of this. And Jonathan has surrendered himself to the Lord's anointed, to David. We see here in this passage that Saul gives David responsibilities and how David acts wisely. We will see this again over and over and over in our chapters this morning. We see that the people, it says the people came out, right? They came out to greet Saul, but when they greeted Saul, they also praised David. So they, they had praise for Saul, their king, but they also had praise for David. And this again is repeated in these chapters of how it seems as if people are just drawn to David over and over and over again and how people saw him as, as wise, how people saw him as loving, how people saw him as caring. It seems to be just a repeated thing all throughout First uh, Samuel here in these last chapters that we are looking at together. But then sadly, there's also a little section that we read there in verses eight through nine, which we'll see happen over and over again, was Saul's anger turns towards David, right? It seems very petty, I think, as we, as we read this, but I think we've all been found guilty of this as well, where we were upset that we didn't get as much credit as we felt was due us. Maybe somebody else received the, the credit. And so how our joy can quickly be turned to mourning or anger or frustration And we see this with Saul, right? Well, they said, I only have slain thousands. David, they're slaying, has slain 10,000s. And he jumps to this conclusion rather quickly, what's left than for him to be king? Which kind of tells us again that maybe Saul knew a little something of the anointing of David as well at this point. And so it says, Saul was angry with David so much so in verse nine that he eyed David from that day forward. And this is true. From that day forward, what Saul looked to do was to kill David whenever he would have opportunity. And it doesn't take very long for us to see this happen. Because if you look at verses 10 through 16, you see that Saul has his first attempt to kill David. 
Scripture tells us that the distressing spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul again. While David is playing his instrument to try to soothe King Saul, it says Saul has a spear in his hand and it says that Saul attempts to kill David with the, with the spear. And verse 12 tells us that Saul feared David and the reason that he wanted to kill David is interesting because the spirit of the Lord was on David. Now why would the king of God's people want to kill the one who the spirit of the Lord was on? Well, it's because it wasn't on him anymore, right? So we see he has this desire and he has this passion to kill David. And so he throws a spear at him. David dodges it. I don't know if Saul was really bad at throwing a spear or if David was just really quick, but we're going to see this being kind of repetitive as well. David escapes and then Saul says, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set David as captain over a thousand men. I'm going to set him over a thousand men. And he thinks maybe this will be a way to kill him. But what happens is when he set over a thousand men that the people continue to fall in love with David. They're continually drawn to him. As we get to chapter 18, verse 17 to 30, we see that Saul comes up with another plan. All right, David's here. I don't like him, but I'm going to keep my enemy close. And so he tells David that he can marry his oldest daughter, Mirab. He promised David this. Well, when it comes time for Saul to give uh, Mirab over to David, he actually doesn't. He gives, a, gives her to somebody else. And so she's married to somebody else. But then Saul decides, this is what I'll do. I'll give you another daughter, Michal. And so promises to give Michal to David as his wife. But there was a problem. David saw himself to be unfit to be son-in-law of the king. He didn't feel worthy enough to do this. And so David is struggling with this and he's saying, I, I don't feel that I could do this. And so what Saul does is Saul comes up with a solution. All right, I think I can kill David here. What I will require of you, David, is you must go and kill a hundred Philistines and bring me their foreskins. Do that, bring them to me, and then you can marry my daughter. So David says, okay. Well, David goes out with his men and they slay 200 Philistines. They kill 200 Philistines. He brings those foreskins to Saul, which had to be quite a sight, if you know what that is. Gives them to Saul. And Saul really sees that his plan had backfired. Because not only does David give him 100, he doubles the amount. He doubles the amount. And the Lord has blessed David again with another victory. And now the Lord has blessed David with a wife. And so David is now the son-in-law uh, to Saul. So this is what has happened. In verse 30 there, at the end of chapter 18, if you read that, you will see that con it continues. Saul continues to fear David, and it says that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, and he becomes highly esteemed. And so again, this continues to happen. As we get to chapter 19, I know I'm going fast, but try to keep with me. I trust maybe you'll read this on your own. In chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, Jonathan and Saul, again, we see, uh, have an agreement. See, what had happened is Saul tells all of his servants in his house, he gets all of his servants together and Jonathan is there and he tells them, listen, you have one goal and the goal is to kill David. That's what you need to do. And so David hears about this and David goes and he hides. Jonathan tells him and so he goes and he hides and then we see that Jonathan then goes and speaks to his father and he says, what has David ever done to you? Everything you've ever asked him to do, he does it. And it's obvious that the Lord blesses him. He, he's committed no sin against you, so why would you kill him? 
And it seems as, as if in this moment that King Saul finally thinks straight and he says, okay, I, I will not attempt to kill David. And so Jonathan goes back to David and says, listen, my dad has relented. He is not going to do this. Come back to the palace. And so David does that. He, he comes back to the palace to live there over where King Saul is. But again, not soon later, in verses 9 through 24, Saul again attempts to kill David. He tries to throw his spear at him again. David escapes again. He escapes to his house where he lives with his wife, Michal. Michal encourages David, says, listen, you can't stay here. It's not safe. You need to leave. You need to go. You need to hide. This isn't something that David wanted to do, but his wife's saying, listen, I know my dad. You, you need to go. You need to get out of here. And so in a, in a picture that is very reminiscent of, of Rahab, if you remember the story of Rahab, and the spies that, that went into town, and you remember Rahab had them escape out the window, and she was promised salvation when Israel would come and attack the town. David is lowered out the window by his wife, and then she, she acts like David is in bed, and so it says that she, she takes things and puts them in bed and actually has goat hair there, so they think that it might be hair, and sure enough, Saul's servants come to the house. Where is David? And Michael covers for him, says he's, he's sick. He doesn't feel good. Apparently they look around. They don't really feel around. They leave. They, they go tell Saul. Saul doesn't like what he hears. Says, go back and grab him. I don't care if he's sick. And so when they go, they find out he's not there. Saul's angry at his daughter. His daughter says, listen, David said he would kill me if I didn't help him escape. And so Saul's anger is at an all-time high at this moment. But one of the problems that Saul's going to find himself in is, is where David flees to, because David flees to Samuel, to God's prophet Samuel, who had said already he would not be with Saul ever again. But now we see the Lord's anointed, right? The Lord's anointed one going to the Lord's prophet. And it's interesting because for Saul, he wasn't scared of Samuel. And so you'll see there at the end of chapter 19 that three times, three times Sam, uh, Saul would send people over to Samuel to catch David. And each time as the servants were heading over to see Samuel, something interesting happened. They started prophesying for the Lord every time so that they didn't come back. They wouldn't come back and bring David back. This happened three times. And so finally Saul had enough. Enough was enough for King Saul. And he said, I'm going to go get David. And scripture tells us, again, you can read this on your own, I'm not making this up, that as he begins to travel to the city to where David and Samuel were, it says Saul again starts to prophesy. He prophesies all the way to Samuel. And in fact, when he gets to town and he gets to Samuel, I do want you to notice this because it's an, a very embarrassing situation for King Saul. In verse 24, the last verse, it says, and he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, I hope that you remember this phrase because this phrase was already mentioned earlier. When Saul was anointed king and he was told by Samuel to go to this place where he will meet some prophets, he did that. And if you remember, Saul started prophesying and the people said, is Saul among the prophets? And it was almost as if there was this elevation of, of Saul's status amongst the people being God's chosen one for, for, uh, for king to be the first king of Israel. Now we almost have a bookend on the story. You have this elevation of Saul. 
Now you have him literally lying naked on the floor. He's the king. He's the king of the nation. He went to get David and to kill him, and he finds himself laying on the floor before Samuel the prophet, naked there, prophesying. Not speaking wise, I think we confuse that sometimes when we see prophesying in scripture that we think he's foretelling future events or something. No, lying naked, maybe praising God, maybe worshiping God, but really in a fallen state. In a fallen state is where we see King Saul at the end of chapter 19. As we get to chapter 20, this is probably a pretty popular passage that maybe you would remember. This whole chapter is the story of how Jonathan saves David again from Saul and it's a story that had to do with, has to do with the, with the arrows and shooting the arrows. Maybe, maybe you remember this. David is supposed to go to dinner with King Saul. It's a time when they were having a feast for a few days. And David says to Jonathan, I can't go there because your dad is going to kill me. And so he says, hey, I'm going to go. Tell your dad that I'm going to Bethlehem, that I have to go to Bethlehem for a thing with my family. And Jonathan says, okay. And David says, but listen, if your dad gets angry, then know this, he wants to kill me. If your dad doesn't get angry and he's like, that's fine, then let me know because then it's safe for me, it's safe for me to come back. Jonathan is pretty positive that his dad is not going to be angry. And we see here in this passage in verses 11 through 16, I want to read those for us because again, we see the relationship of Jonathan and David. So in chapter 20, verse 11, it says, and Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is a witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so as much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Verse 14. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. It says, so Jonathan then made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Again, we see a covenant that is made between, between David and between Jonathan and if you, if you go ahead uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 9, don't do that today, but you can read it, you'll see that David, David upholds his end of this covenant with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was a paralyzed or a paralytic, or we don't, we don't know everything about him, but he really was worthless to the kingdom. He, he couldn't fight, he couldn't do anything to make anything, but we see how King David would take Jonathan's son, who normally would be killed because of a threat to his kingdom, how David would take him in and let him sit and eat at his table. It's really a beautiful story. We don't have time to go into it too much today. But David would uphold this covenant. As I said, Jonathan comes up with this plan. He says, David, you go hide out there. Once I hear from my father and what is going on, I will shoot some arrows. I'll have a lad go out to get the arrows. And if I say, hey, the arrows are beyond you, David, it's bad. If I say, no, they are closer, then David, it is good. Well, Sure enough, the meal happens. The first day goes by, nothing really happens. The second day comes, and Saul's like, hey, where's David? Jonathan tells him he's in Bethlehem. Saul gets very angry. Jonathan tries to stick up for Saul. Again, while Saul is eating, for some reason, he has the spear in his hand. 
And now he tries to kill his own son. He throws his spear at Jonathan, doesn't hit him. Jonathan then goes out into the field and does what he promised David he would do. He shoots the arrows, sends the lad out and says, I think they're beyond you. Then after the lad leaves, we see there at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verses 41 through 42, it says, as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. And so we really have a sad situation of David and Jonathan having to be separated now because of Saul and the threat that he continues to make on the life of David. As we get to chapter 21, verse 1 through 9, we have the story of David and the holy bread. David has some men with him. In his haste, he has left the city, but there are men with him. And he arrives in a town called Nob. He talks with the priests there, Amalek. This is who the priest is over that area. And he says, hey, I'm here to do King Saul's work. I had to leave in haste. I don't have any food. Do you have any food here for me? And so he asks for some bread. The priest says, no, all I have is holy bread here. It's not good for the common man. But then he asks him, the priest asks him, have your men kept themselves from women? And David says, yes, we have, we have done that. And so the priest ends up giving David this bread. But then David also says, hey, I had to leave so fast. I don't have any weapons. Do you have any weapons with you that I could have? Well, it just so happens that the sword of Goliath is there. And he says, the, the priest says to David, well, the sword of the Philistine that you killed is right over there. You can take that if you would like. And so David does that. But in an interesting little twist in verses one through nine, it tells us that there is somebody there during all of this, a man by the name of Doeg. And it tells us that Doeg is the head of all of Saul's herds. He's the head herdsman. And he overheard everything that's happened. Well, we then get to verses 10 through 15, and it's really a, it's really a sad story here on the part of David. Because David is in such distress. You remember, this is the Lord's anointed. This is God's king that he has chosen for himself. He has nowhere else to go. And it's interesting the town that he goes to because he goes to the town of Gath, which doesn't make sense. He just got the sword of Goliath and now he's going to put that sword of Goliath on his shoulder and walk into Goliath's city and look for protection. Really not a smart decision. He ends up getting brought to the king of the city and it seems as if David understands at this moment, I've made a mistake. Because the people remind the king, hey, this is David. This is, remember, everybody was chanting, Saul slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. This is David. And so when the king comes back to David and wants to have words with him, David acts as if he is a madman. He starts to drool all over himself. He starts to scratch on the doors and on the gate. It tells us in verse 13, and it says the king of the town looks at his servants and say, listen, <laughs> I don't need another crazy person. Get him out of here. I've got enough of him. And so the Lord, it says, protects David from this. And so then we get to chapter 22, and I want to read the first five verses of chapter 22 because these are important verses for us. So after this bad decision that David made, it tells us, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. 
Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. It says, now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So we see something happening here. David goes to the land of Moab, which that should sound familiar to us. If you were here when we went through the book of Ruth, Ruth is a Moabite. David has Moabite blood in his body because Ruth is a descendant of of David. And so David goes to this king, and I, I don't know if the king of Moab knew this. I don't know if David appealed to this. But isn't it interesting how God works things out? When God's anointed needs protection, it just so happens that about 50 years ago, about 50 years ago, my grandma came from this land. My great-great-grandma came from this land. And we see that the king gives him and his family protection. But as David is hiding out, it tells us his family flees to him. It also tells us that the distressed come to him. It tells us that those who are in debt come to him. And so David, the Lord's anointed, finds himself completely surrounded at this moment by outcasts, finds himself surrounded by those who are hopeless. One really must wonder why this is. Why would this be a part of God's plan for his anointed one? Why, Why would we have this here in this passage? Why does the Lord give us this in chapter 22, verse 1 through 5? I really believe the purpose of this is because he's God's anointed and the people realize it. That's why they are going to him. They know that David is the anointed one, the the chosen one. See, they they look at Saul and they see that Saul really doesn't want to have anything to do with them, but they look at David and they know that David will be the one that cares for them. It really sounds familiar In Mark chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, speaking about Jesus, it says, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, just like David, Jesus would find himself surrounded by the outcast, surrounded by the sinner, not one that royalty would want to be surrounded with. So we see this again as a type, David being a type of Christ here, right? Over and over again in Jesus's life, the hurting would flock to him. And what does Jesus do over and over again? He shows compassion on them and he cares for them. He would kneel down to them. Right? He, he would love on them over and over and over again. And likewise, we see this picture with David. David is doing the exact same thing here. And it's really important for us to reflect on this for a moment. Because when we think about the Lord's anointed and what it takes to approach the Lord's anointed, it seems in this passage that it takes humility. That there's a humility aspect. I can't believe it was very comforting for those people to go to David and say, I'm in debt or I have nowhere else to go, I'm an outcast. Will he accept me? Will he allow me to stay with him? I mean, 
David's fleeing for his life. So the last thing that he wants is 400, 800 people surrounding around him all the time that he has to take care of. He's having a hard enough time taking care of himself, getting away from Saul. But these people in their humility would, would flock to David and David would accept them. Well, this is something true that we see of Jesus as well. The truly anointed one, the Messiah. He would say in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 2 through 5, something that just really wouldn't make sense to many people even today. Because it says he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for, for they shall inherit the earth. What's Jesus doing there? Right? He's telling us what we see here in this being pictured with David. Those who humble themselves before me, those who recognize their state before God, those are the ones that can come to me. Those are the ones who by faith will receive grace, who will inherit the kingdom. Not those who think they've made it, not those who think that they are good enough, not those who think they can add something to this. No, the broken, the hurting, those who are not proud. This is a truth that still stands for us this morning. Jesus welcomes the broken. He saves the sinner, not the perfect. He saves the sick, not the healthy. But that's a hard hurdle for many of us to get over. Maybe even today, you walk in this room. It's hard for you to admit your shame. It's hard for you to admit your guilt before the Lord. But that's what we're called to do. Uh, to be saved by him, we must give those things over to him. We must admit who we are and the sin that we have and that we cannot overcome it, but only he, but only he can. And we see that Jesus in his grace with open arms pours out that grace on those who by faith understand that. Well, as we continue on, chapter 22, verse 6 through 23, really is a sad story. Saul hears about what's happening because uh, of where David has been going. Here's where he is at. And so Saul then calls upon the priests, right? Because what, what happens here is, is Saul is in a tantrum. He's mad at all of his servants. He's mad at everybody because David hasn't been brought to him. And he's saying, where is he? What is going on? And, and nobody is speaking up. But then this man enters the scene again, Doeg. Doeg, the guy who heard David and the priest. Doeg, the herdsman, speaks up and tells Saul exactly what had happened. Said, I, I saw David here and the priest did this. And so scripture tells us then that Saul calls for Imelech and wants him here. And so we see then Saul interrogating the priest and he doesn't like what he hears. The priest says, listen, David said he was on your mission. He didn't tell me anything else. I thought he was serving the king and this is what I did for him. Saul in his rage and in his anger looks at his servants and he tells his servants, kill all the priests, kill the whole town, kill everybody, man, woman, child, beast, kill everybody. But they all look at the king and they will not do it because they will not raise their sword against the Lord's priests. But then Doeg, the Edomite, steps up and says, I'll do it. And so scripture tells us that that day, Doeg kills 85 priests, that he goes into the town and he kills all the women, he kills all the children, he kills all the cattle. But an interesting little side note, 
one of the priests gets away. Abiathar gets away. And he flees. Where do you think he flees? To David. He flees to David. All his family has been killed. His home has been killed. And scripture tells us that he runs to David. And I want you to look at verses 20 through 23 with me. Because you have King Saul on the throne over Israel, killing God's priests, and really in so doing, this wasn't his motivation, uh, but fulfilling the promise that was made to Eli by God a long time ago that his line would not last as priests. You You have the king killing these priests, and then this is what you have David doing. Look at verse 20. It says, now one of, the, one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. And then look at what the Lord's anointed says in verse 23. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you shall be safe. What a, what a contrast we have here from David and Saul. When Saul is trying to kill the Lord's priest, David is saying, come to me. You'll find rest here. Come to me. You have no hope. You have hope here with me. I will keep you safe. So we have David, the savior of God's people and God's priests now together and David promising them complete protection. In very sharp contrast, you have King Saul. And I'm gonna use a title here that you might not expect me to use, but I'm gonna explain myself. You have King Saul, the Antichrist, because that's what Saul's fulfilling here in this moment. In 1 John chapter two, verse 18, John would say this. He said, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now listen, one day, and we, we see this in Revelation and some other places, is that one day there will be a final Antichrist before Jesus' return. We know that this can be true. But we also see those who are called Antichrists in Scripture at different times And these are people who just simply embody pure evil and they fight against God's anointed. They continually fight against the things of God. So just like Pharaoh, who would see God's hand and God's work with God's people, would continually fight against the things of God, even to the destruction of his own people, as embodying this antichrist. Or if you remember in Esther, in the book of Esther with Haman, Haman was trying to exterminate forever the Jewish people, but God would step in and use Esther and and Mordecai and God would save his people. But Haman himself being another antichrist or, or King Herod, who remember when Jesus was born and he heard that the Messiah was born or the King of the Jews was born, sent out a decree throughout all the land that all the kids had to be killed and slaughtered, which would force Jesus and his family to flee to Egypt. You see, he was an antichrist as well. But what we notice in the midst of all these situations as the enemy would try to fight against the things of God over and over and over again, God protects for himself a remnant. He protects for himself at least someone. In this case, all the priests are killed, but not one of them 
One of them escapes. You remember, all the babies killed. Well, not one of them. Jesus and his family, they escape. Right? The people, uh, the Pharaoh tries to kill all the babies. Moses escapes. We see the Lord continually protecting his anointed. And so sadly, the picture that we have here with King Saul is King Saul now coming right along with these other antichrists to fight against God, the king of Israel, fighting against God and fighting against God's people, trying his best to destroy his anointed because King Saul knows that the spirit of the Lord has left him and that the spirit of the Lord is on David. And so he's doing his best to fight against this and to stop this. But he can't stop it. He just can't. This is great news for us because we understand that we have a God that will protect his anointed always. How his plans cannot be thwarted no matter what. There's nothing that can happen that can stop God and his ways. When all seems lost, when, when everything seems hopeless, we find out that God has saved for himself a remnant. God has saved for himself at least someone who in this case, as I said, was the priest who escaped from David. I want to stop there just for a second because I, I hear a lot of talk, and this isn't in my notes, maybe I shouldn't say this. I hear a lot of talk of disaster for the church soon. Nothing can stop the church. Oh, you might die. MNBC might die. These buildings could be burnt down and it could be destroyed. Probably not very difficult, really. It'd fall apart probably pretty easy, being honest. But the church will never be destroyed. That's God's chosen people. Those are the people, the church are the people who have surrendered themselves to God's anointed, Jesus Christ himself. And because we have surrendered to Jesus Christ himself, there is nothing that can destroy the church. Listen, we can't miss the fact 85 priests got killed that day. 85 of them died. But one escaped. God kept his people through one. We could all face the sword. We could all die. But listen, the whole church will not be extinguished. The whole church will not fade away. God will not allow that. God will not have that happen. And we see those promises all throughout Scripture. And listen, that's good news. You might leave saying, Pastor Tim did not give us good news because he said, maybe I'll die. Maybe the maybe Menorah Missionary Baptist Church will die. Maybe all that will be destroyed. And maybe, I, I really don't know. But the good news is this. It's not really about you anyways. It's about him. This life isn't about me. Life is about him and what he has done. And so we have to have hope in that. We have to find our joy in that, is that God's kingdom cannot be destroyed. Well, as we get to chapter 23 and verses 1 through 13, we see that the Philistines attack the city of Kelah. And David asks of the Lord, should I go and attack the Philistines? Should I go up against them? And the Lord tells him, yes, go and do it. But David's men are afraid. They're scared to death. They're saying, People are searching for us everywhere. Why would we go and fight the Philistines? Basically, let Saul do that. It's his job. But David acquires of the Lord again. And the Lord says, yes, go and do this. Go save the town. And David saves the town. 
But when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 23, look in verse 9, beginning in verse 9. We'll read to 18. It says, when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard, O Lord God of Israel? I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Here again, the Lord protects David. Here again, the Lord continues to direct David, but not Saul. The Lord would continue to send prophets and to send priests to David to tell him things. Here we see the Lord, or we, we see David go to the Lord and say, are the people that I just saved going to turn me over? Yes. Okay, I need to flee. The Lord continually protecting David again and again and again and again. But what we see in contrast is we see King Saul filled with anger, filled with greed, and that ruining his life to where no longer he's really king of God's people. He's his own king, trying to do his own thing, trying to seek a vengeance after God's chosen king. It's interesting, is it not, how Jonathan said, even my dad knows you're the next king. My, my dad knows this. And it gives us the answer to why Saul is doing all that he's doing. He doesn't want to lose his kingdom. But again, the Lord would save David and he would escape. After this, Saul continues to track David in the wilderness through the rest of that chapter. And the Lord continues to protect David because at one point, King Saul gets so close to David, David really has nowhere to go. David really has nothing else to do. We don't see any more tricks in his bag. But once again, the Lord would step in because right before Saul would get to David and kill David, what would happen is the Philistines would attack not too far away and Saul would be called away to have to go fight the Philistines. And so, the God, so God uses the enemies to make sure his anointed is safe even in that. And so we see the Lord protecting David again, once again. During all this time, David would write Psalm 52. Because at the very beginning of Psalm 52, it tells us that David would write this as Doag, the Edomite, would be turning him over to King Saul. I want to read Psalm 52 so that we would hear David's words. I hope that they bring us encouragement and hope today. Because this is what David would write in the midst of a very tumultuous situation. 
I dare say a situation that none of us have really experienced or understood. David would say, why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. Your worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all, you love all words that devour. O oh, deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. As I said, we, we can't compare ourselves to David here, really. I, I don't think any of us have really been in this kind of a situation in our own lives to face what David is facing in this moment with armies surrounding him and all these different things. But David understood that God would not allow his anointed to be touched. As we as the church fight against the powers that we fight against, right? We, 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 we go out there with our whatever, the Christian flag, and we, we fight for whatever it is. Maybe very valiantly, maybe very honorably. We need to understand that we, we hopefully know we're, we're fighting against Satan, right? We're fighting against the attacks of Satan. We're fighting against those things. We, we know that scripture talks about a spiritual warfare that is happening and things that you don't even see and maybe don't even fully understand, but as you go into this battle and as you fight these battles, and I believe as Christians, you should stand up for some of these things. You really should. It is the right thing to do scripturally. I think we could stand on those grounds at, at times. I want you to understand this. Even if you lose, even if you lose, it wasn't about them beating you. What Satan is trying to do is he's trying to conquer Christ. He's trying to conquer Jesus. And as all these things come, come against the church, you know, and people really take it personally, it's not about you. They are trying to destroy Jesus. And we should have a lot of hope in that battle because they cannot destroy Jesus. They can destroy you. Again, they, they can destroy me. But they cannot destroy the one that they're trying to destroy. They can maybe shut up your mouth. They can maybe shut up my mouth. They can maybe shut up the mouths of everyone across America and they can try to do that. But they cannot stop the plan of God because Jesus already proclaimed, it's finished. It's over. Victory is his Though the whole world might go up against him and try to destroy him, he cannot be destroyed. It's the same with David here in this passage. It seemed as if the whole world was going to destroy him, but listen, they could not touch him because he was God's anointed, chosen one to take the throne. No doubt, some of David's men 
fell. No doubt some of them died. No doubt they faced great hardships, but nothing was going to stop David from becoming king because God had already ordained it to be done. Church, God has already ordained for us victory through Christ. No proposal, no ballot, no person in this world can stop the things of God. Don't let those things shake you. Do not let those things stop you. Again, let me say, should you take a stand for Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very important to do. But don't think if you lose in this world, it means Christ is lost. He cannot lose. It is never over with him. He's won. He is victorious. And so we, of all people in this country, as we approach the things that we approach, we of all people in this country should have the greatest joy in our heart. We should have the most hope out of everybody else. We should carry within us the greatest amount of peace than anybody else who is apart from Christ. Why? Because where they stand is sinking sand. Where we stand is the solid rock, the cornerstone, Jesus. He will not be shaken. He will not be moved. And we should take great joy in that. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.